Hi, I'm Jeremy, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Uh, with me, as always, is Dr. David P. Gushy. And um, there's some weather out there today. So if the recording's a little noisy, it's just the wind and the rain. And we, we tried to do something about it, but it's still raining. So <laughs> there may or may not be a Braves game tonight. We shall see. Yep. How are the Braves doing so far? They're actually very good. The second best team in the National League. So That's, that yep. almost means something. <laughs> but also it's an Atlanta sports team, so they're just going to blow it somewhere. Stop, Jeremy. The- believe, believe, Jeremy. <laughs> I have no faith in any Atlanta sports team. How's, uh, how is your summer of grandpaing coming? Good, good. Our kids are, grandkids are four and one now and, um, about to move into a whole month of full-time childcare. Um, but before that, I need to finish editing uh, the new a collection of essays about Glenn Stassen that uh, will end up being uh, my 25th book, and that'll be with Orbis coming out next year. Maybe we'll talk about that some more next time. Yeah, we'll make sure to... We'll spend some intentional time talking about that book um, and spending some time with the work and thought of Stassen because... We need we need to expose more people to the Stassen tradition. I've so speaking of grandpa, I am ten weeks away from my baby coming along. That's so exciting, Jeremy. And two weeks away from my parents closing on a house three minutes from me. Your life is changing. It's, it's changing a lot. What yeah. what advice would you pass on to my parents who have decided to be down the street grandparents? Are they retired? They're half retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say enjoy the grandchild, but make sure communication is open and free between you and the couple so that the amount of time together and the amount of time apart is comfortable for all parties. There you go. We've had some boundaries conversations. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I've been doing all sorts of boundaries conversations lately. Um, you mentioned that you're wrapping up the Stassen book. I just got back from Uganda. I was in Kampala for a week working with uh, Mission Advance Uganda, a uh, NGO, not-for-profit, Christian uh, equipping organization of local pastors that I've been uh, partnered with through the WordWalk Missions Organization for about five years now, and they're doing incredible work on community advancement and pastoral education and Christian discipleship and humanitarian efforts. Really great work. I got to spend a week helping them think through some of their leadership cool. uh, structure and stuff like that. You'll like this one. Uh, just two days ago, I was in Pensacola, Florida, talking with a team that WordWalk is sending to an interfaith school in Palestine. Mm. that we've partnered with, Muslim, wow. Jewish, Christian teachers and kids in Bethlehem. And they're trying to work that it it's as hard as it sounds, is yeah. what it turns out to be. They're all all willing parties, and they're like, we will do this. We will have a school of Christians and Jews and Muslims. And they got together, and they're like, oh, this is really hard. And we've yeah. sent some uh, specialists yeah. on conflict management, and uh, I did some talk on with them about theology of space and how to use space in part of your education Mm. and life together. Uh, My experience is the Israel and Palestine area and all of that is about the most complicated human problem that I have ever encountered. Um, But 
anyway, we can talk about that some more some other time. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to continue with our moral leaders looking at Ida B. Wells, who tackled one of the biggest human problems that we had during her lifetime uh, in the United States, specifically in the South. We remember her for her work on lynching, for her journalism on the subject and her courage to write and stand and be a female black person of integrity and moral leadership who would stand at this time when no one wanted a hero or a speaker who was a woman of color um, who would be uppity and forget her place and stand up to the uh, white southern power structure. It's an extraordinary story, almost lost to history. Um, I'm really glad uh, that we included her in our book, um, and I keep learning more about her. I'm reading this massive biography uh, of Ida B. Wells by Paula Giddings um, that I would recommend for those who want to dive uh, further, and also just reading her her own writings about lynching in particular. But she had a lot of other concerns as well. Um, but lynching, she will always be associated with the relentless truth-telling and campaigning against extrajudicial murder, which is what lynching mm -hmm. was. So a little bit of background. She was um, born during the Civil War as a slave child um, when in Mississippi. When um, the war ended uh, and her parents were freed, um uh her they got start her dad got started in business and it was a he was a political activist himself and um so it was a, a family of faith and a family of drive and purpose mm -hmm. um and but when she was still uh in her teen years her parents were cut down by yellow fever and so uh she was immediately plunged into a very challenging um, what, you know, who's going to, who's going to take care of her brothers and sisters? Um, and, uh, and what, how, how are they going to make ends meet? And, and all of this, eventually she became a teacher in the Memphis area. And, um, I gather that she liked teaching, but didn't love it and had some issues with, um, with the bureaucracy and the whole politics of things there. Um, she was also a writer. She was a journalist. One thing I gathered from reading this new biography, what's to me new about Ida B. Wells, is newspapers in the 1880s were kind of like Twitter and Facebook today. It's a little more pamphleteery. Uh -huh, and they were everywhere. Uh, there were newspapers of all types and published once or twice a day. And um, but anyway, so she was she was, uh, you know, a, a writer in one of these newspapers in Memphis. And um, but where she first began to attract some serious attention was when she got um, thrown out of a first class section of a train. Why trains again? Trains. Yeah. Th th this story, I was so Ida B. Wells Barnett was a new figure to me. I made it through um, private school from the beginning of my education through a master's degree without knowing about. Ida B. Wells Barnett. Um, and then I saw her name on the list for this book. And so I went and spent some time with her and was thrilled and shocked and saddened to be so late coming to this party. Mm. But once again, we have this similar story 
um, to very similar to Mandela, um, and even Gandhi. with the train and Gandhi on the train and Rosa Parks mm-hmm. on the and bus. Rosa Parks on the bus, but then also sort of that parallel um, with King and some of these other leaders, where in their internal community they were a person of stature, yeah. and then when they entered the majority community, they were treated with indignity that they were not used to, and it shocked them into action. Um, so when you see that, it helps to make the Rosa Parks story, which more white Americans are familiar with, to be seen not as a kind of a rare exception, but that was the experience mm-hmm. for black people um, in the South in particular, that that public transport, which everybody used, especially before cars, right? right. that public transport was a treacherous environment of dehumanization and um, and that it galvanized. Humiliation galvanizes people to action. Nobody likes to be humiliated. She, I, I think of when you see, every picture you have of Ida B. Wells, she's dressed in pretty nice clothes. Mm-hmm. In fact, the biographies show that she, she had a little trouble with spending beyond her means. She liked, she liked to wear nice clothes. She was a high-class woman. She presented herself in that way. She rolled in those circles. She rolled in those circles, and she, by golly, had bought a first-class train ticket. And she was going to sit in the first-class train section, and the stupid conductor uh, tried to throw her out, and she like she held on for dear life, and she bit his hand, and, and um, she's a tough lady. Ida B. Wells was a tough lady. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it ended up going all the way up to the to the um, Tennessee Supreme Court, and so she got a lot of attention for that. I believe she lost in the Tennessee Supreme Court. But this was a first major public experience of Tennessee racism, Southern racism. But the galvan, the most galvanizing one was when some friends of hers got lynched in Memphis. And it was over a, a stupid dispute between two store owners, one black and one white, who were competing, you might say, in the mm-hmm. same little market. And... Uh, and there was a fight that broke out between two teenage boys, one black, one white, or even younger. And eventually the guns are drawn and people get killed. And, and three, I think it was four, uh, black men or uh, family men are taken off to jail. And then uh, they are dragged out of jail and lynched. And, and she was, the, I believe, the godmother of one of the, right. one of the men's children. And, and so, by the way, when you're a white person who, who hears this story, it's a reminder that Lynching didn't happen to statistics. Lynching happened to real people with spouses and children and, and people who knew people, right? I mean, this this was a friend of hers. Mm-hmm. And what's common? Thomas Moss. Yeah, and yeah. many of the, the lynching accounts that we have is what we see here in this story, that the people that end up dead aren't even directly connected to the original event. It's just it's like, a racial revenge yeah, movement. Yeah, like any black body will do. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing, when you read the Giddings biography, um, the significance of lynching in American history has never been as clear to me as it is now. And again, this is a huge blind spot is not a strong enough word for mainstream historical education. It isn't just that from about 1880 until the 1950s and even into the 60s, 
the lynching of black people by white people was a fairly common terroristic practice. Right. It is that a couple of things that are new discoveries that that lots of times lots of people were involved, not just a few like you know poor people or like mean people, but like the whole community would be mm-hmm. involved. Your whole church, the whole church, the whole the power structure of the town, the mayor, the police chief, and so on. It was when they believed that the judicial system was not fast enough or mean enough or uh, vengeful enough or just because they wanted to do it themselves, they wanted blood. That's one thing. And the other is the extreme carnivals of cruelty that gradually developed so that it wasn't just about killing people. It was about publicly maiming, torturing, and then killing people. Right. The, uh, the, the image that we have from movies is snatch, hang, leave. But I, I've, I've been at some museum where I held a postcard that was a, it was a photograph of yeah. a lynching. Yeah, it's a famous um, picture. Yeah, the wish you were here, you missed the barbecue. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was a family yeah. event, and it, it wasn't just your the, the hangings. It was mutilation. It's a thousand stab wounds. It's the uh-huh. removal of eyes. It's and castration. And, yeah. yeah. It was a spectacle of cruelty. Um, one reason, one reason I think scholars of this problem of race in America and black people in general believe that, that white America has not hardly begun to scratch the surface of coming to terms with what happened here is because lynching is so poorly understood and so little known. Mm-hmm. And because the cruelties done in lynching rival in, in their character any of the sadistic cruelties done that I have ever studied about, including in Nazi camps and in the conquest of Latin America by the Portuguese and the Spaniards and any other place in which human sadism was unleashed. Yeah, it's a banality of evil thing. It's normal people did this. Yeah, normal people because they were unleashed to do it, right? Which, by the way, is another reason why I'm warning these days. Don't unleash people. Don't tell them, yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. Don't hint, go for it. Don't set up targets that people might feel like it's okay to go for it. Right? So what Ida B. Wells did after her friend was murdered was to set about becoming the leading journalist and describing what lynching was and why it was so evil and what motivated it and why it must be stopped. The the myth in the South was that lynching was required to avenge black men's mistreatment of and rapes of white women. Those, the, the idea was these beastly, animalistic black men were routinely deflowering white women, and they needed to be ferociously prevented from doing so. Mm-hmm. But what Ida B. Wells was able to document in a kind of an early sociology, actual statistics and so on, of 
and specific accounts of why people were being lynched. And that often it was consensual relationships that that uh, the woman humiliated in discovery would then claim race, like rape. Mm-hmm. Or um, it was a business dispute or a labor dispute. A perceived slight. Perceived slight of some type. Remember, why did Emmett Till get killed in Mississippi in 1954 or something? The accusation was that he had whistled at a white woman. Um, at the National Lynching Museum in Montgomery that we Which took. Which is incredible. It is incredible. We took our class to last year. Um, something like 4,500 or so um, documented lynchings are, are, are remembered there. And there's a display of like reasons why people were lynched. And it's everything. Um, it was basically, so what it was, was a mechanism of social control. We can do this to you when we feel the need to without being punished. So we're in charge. Submit. That's what lynching was about. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ida B. Wells risked her own life and neck telling the truth about lynching for decades. The Giddings biography shows that it was never easy. Not only was she threatened, but there, there was like, she was a new, I mean, she was a woman and she, and, and she was not in charge of a church and she did not have a power structure mm-hmm. that, who are you? Who are you? How are you doing this? And, and, we hear about the some of the major figures of her era, like Booker Wash Booker T. Washington mm-hmm. and and W. E. B. Du Bois and um and other people who are less well known and the various kind of struggles for for a voice and prestige and who got the attention and stuff like that. Um and and uh, you know even some of the folks within the black community at that time were were seemingly purposefully marginalizing her role in order to lift up other people's voice or whatever rivalries it's like right. wherever you are right power struggles but but in the end um what shines through is the brilliance and the truthfulness and the courage of her of her accounts of what happened she went to britain did a lecture tour or actually two of them there to talk about what was going on in america uh uh raised money to to um to get investigations into specific events and then uh, challenge uh, for justice to be done, lobbied governors and Congress that lynchers should be punished instead of allowed to get away with it with impunity, lobbied for an anti-lynching law, which has still never been passed in the United States at the federal level. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, and then meanwhile... Uh, attempted to to live her life. Eventually, got married to one of the uh, kind of the leading black activists in Chicago named Ferdinand Barnett. So that's how she became Ida B. Wells Barnett. And hyphenates. Hyph- she hyphenates <laughs> her name in uh, 1910 or something. You know, that's amazing. Um, very modern. Uh, she grew weary and well doing. It wasn't easy. She was feisty. Mm-hmm. People didn't like working. People with her. didn't like working with her. She. <laughs> there was a club that was named the Ida B. Wells Club, and she got pushed out of leadership in her, you know, in her own club. Um, and you know, wasn't Harriet Tubman in the club? I don't know she, if she I was in like that I one. I saw that. Now, Harriet Tubman makes an appearance in this book. It's like it's an all-star team. Frederick Douglass, she's friends with Frederick right. Douglass, you know? So everybody you've ever heard of in the kind of the 
top figures of the late 19th, early 20th century in the black community. She knew them all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes got along well with them. Sometimes didn't. No, it doesn't seem like she got along well with anyone for any period of time. <laughs> I, and I, 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 I don't I, see where it is. I can't figure out why. I think it was. Maybe it has to do with um, a scarcity environment when there's not enough influence and opportunity and resources to go around there's a kind of scrapping for it okay that may be it but apparently her i mean her personality was a little feisty too but maybe you need to be feisty certainly you Mm -hmm. do in that in that kind of environment so i would say i mean one of the things that i think is important think about there may be listeners i I run into people like this who are like well i want to speak up about whatever Mm -hmm. x but I don't want people to not like me or I don't want I don't want to lose any friends on Facebook or I don't want to lose my position at my church. When you see people who have risked their lives, uh Harry Tubman was the same story, right? But here here is a person, she was risking her life by what she was putting in the newspaper. So when you see people who have risked their lives for telling the truth, maybe we can have a little <laughs> bit more courage. That somebody yes. might get mad at us on Facebook and it's really okay. You know? Um, life is in this seeing through a glass darkly world of ours. Life is inherently conflictual. And and there's lots of differences of opinion. And sometimes people disagree strongly. And sometimes they may not like us anymore. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter as much as following our conscience and telling the truth and standing up for innocent people to the very best of our ability. So Ida B. Wells is a ferocious warrior for the truth and somebody who was calling for an end to extrajudicial murder of her people as a routine social practice in America. That doesn't seem like that should have been a hard call. But people can get used to anything. Right. We got used to lynching until it wasn't okay anymore. But lynching and lynching type things went on in our society well into the 60s. If you go to the, maybe we'll close with this, if you go to the lynching memorial, it's called the Memorial for Peace and Justice, I think. It's mm-hmm. kind of a vague Something name. Like that. But if you, if you go to that museum or memorial, it's a big open grassy space in Montgomery. The ingenious move that, that Brian Stevenson and his people made there was to organize lynching by counties. And you have these big um, blocks of whatever that is, iron or whatever. Mm, that are hanging. Hanging from the ceiling with the names of all the people lynched in that county. And so what you find yourself doing when you go there is rushing to find counties that you know. For me, it was Madison County in Tennessee and DeKalb County in Georgia and Fairfax County in Virginia and so on. And and you discover that lynching was certainly region-wide in the South, but also had extended beyond. Uh, the Midwest was... Right. You know, there was a fair number of lynchings in the Midwest, St. Louis, and so on. And so, if you don't take lynching seriously, you have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to the history of racism in America. You, you have to. You have to go back. You You need to stand in that uh, memorial, the way that it forces you down is incredible. I can't remember who, whose thought this is. I'll see if I can find it 
and put it up when we share the uh, this episode. I read an African-American scholar who was saying the reason uh, white churches don't engage with the history of racism in America is because we don't have the pastoral care bandwidth to deal with the fallout, mm. that we, ju- we couldn't process it as an institution. There's a lot of work beginning to emerge among scholars on issues like white shame mm-hmm. and white fragility. You feel it when you stand under that massive iron block with names in your home county. Yeah. As I couldn't breathe. Mm. And it's a it's a it's a big deal when you do that. So then the question is, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. And if the feeling is shame, I'm, I'm ashamed of my people, that can either pivot to, I want to do better in my life, or I want us to do better now, or to, I hate whoever it is is making me do this. Mm-hmm. I hate whoever it is is rubbing my nose and the stuff from the past. And in other words, the move goes defensive. Right. And I think that's a lot of that explains a lot of kind of white racial politics right now. Stop talking to me about that stuff from the past. That's a hundred years ago. Uh-huh. Right. And so so shame as path to repentance is 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 good. Shame as path to defensiveness and anger is dangerous. Right. You need to shepherd it. You do. The, um, this is something I struggle with uh, from the pulpit and my pastoral office is how to balance prophet and pastor. Yeah. Um, but so you know what we often do is like maybe if we're feeling really progressive, we invite a black speaker mm-hmm. on Martin Luther King Day or for Black History Month. And then they tell us some truth that we'd rather not hear. And we say, thank you very much. Um, we have done our duty. You can go back home now. We'll continue business as usual. Mm-hmm. So some of those speaking that I've been doing, I spoke at Lubbock Christian University this summer on race from my AAR presidential address that we've talked about on this show. And um, I had a, there was a, a couple of black um, participants in the conference who said to me, at this point, it is more important that you say this than that we say this. Mm-hmm. I have a friend in a, sort of a small town Florida situation in Northwest, so like proper Southern Florida. Yeah, yeah. and he is a—he's an incredibly—he's t- the best preacher in Greater Pensacola, mm. and he's a black pastor in a ninety-plus percent white church. What? In a little rural suburb. Mm. And he says, and, and they love him. And he is, he's an incredible pastor and an amazing preacher. But he says, every now and then, I accidentally sound like a black man. And then I have trouble for a month. Mm. Um, Whenever he talks about a justice issue. Race, race runs in deep, deep layers. And, and I think you can sometimes maybe it's like it's like peeling an onion or something like you think you've made some progress and here's the next layer and here's mm-hmm. the next layer 
here's the next layer and there's often setbacks and uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, um, theory that groups are less moral than individuals continually makes sense to me sometimes at the group level the defensiveness and stupidity is worse than at the individual level you could maybe have a one-on-one talk but in a group setting right people don't function as well right um but i urge our listeners to understand how little we do understand about race at least our white listeners and how much learning we also have to do listening repenting reading growing mistakes we will make as we try to move on this journey um but and how little we understand right and 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 mainstream predominantly white education is going to leave us with huge gaps and if you look behind me today this is my african-american studies section in this office um it's you maybe you can take a picture of it uh it is massive and it is um a library that i feel like i've now read maybe 10 percent of um we don't, I mean, even the whole idea of a Black History Month is condescending. Um, this is all American history and and American literature. Yeah, we and, can't keep ghettoizing it. Uh, and American religion and American experience. And um, and not to mention the Latino uh, story and the Native American story and mm-hmm. so on. And, and the only, only uh, explanation I can come up with is that white folks have needed to bury this history because it's too painful and we can't, we should never have done that. And we certainly can't afford to do it anymore. Very good. We will leave you with the leadership lessons from the audio version of moral leadership for a divided age for Ida B. Wells Barnett. Leadership lessons. Ida B. Wells Barnett's life and work offer a number of important lessons about moral leadership. Be fearless. Wells Barnett never backed down or shied away from responsibility, but rather threw herself into the fray in pursuit of justice. Do not bind yourself to consequences, but be willing to face them in order to do what is right. Moral leadership will always provoke a backlash. Trust what you see. Some moral leaders find solutions to problems everyone can see. Others invite society to see injustice where it would rather turn a blind eye. Trust that tireless campaigning can put moral issues on the map. Journalism is a vehicle for change. Not all moral leaders lead nations or political institutions. Though Wells Barnett certainly led organizations, the enduring testimony of her life is to the power of investigative journalism. Family partnerships matter. Wells Barnett was driven, but even she could not have balanced her career and family without a domestic partnership with her husband, Ferdinand. Do not assume you can do it all. Find people willing to share the burden. Tend to relationships. Wells Barnett's high moral code spurred her to greatness, even as it hurt her ability to sustain relationships and work in organizations. Balance the pastoral with the prophetic. Ida B. Wells Barnett surveyed supposedly isolated cases of violence, connected the dots, and pronounced an epidemic. Through forceful campaigning and the power of the pen, she transformed an injustice not fit for discussion in polite company 
into an international cause. She tore through a web of myths to arrive at the truth about lynchings, and she united far-flung allies into a movement to put an end to it. She lived long enough to see lynching numbers decline in the face of international condemnation she had sparked. Wells Barnett led a life of faith and action. She rejected the otherworldly fascination that was an acknowledged aspect of the African-American Christianity of that era, Daryl Trimieu writes, and instead worshipped a God who could act in history to liberate oppressed people. Such a God demands that believers also attempt to transform the world. Wells Barnett strove to be one of those believers. It cost her a successful newspaper, and very nearly her life. Afterward, she wrote, Having lost my paper, had a price put on my life, and been made an exile, I felt that I owed it to myself and my race to tell the whole truth. She did exactly that, providing a lasting testament to the power of truth to transform the hearts of humankind. Late in Wells Barnett's life, Mrs. N.F. Mosel, a strong supporter, asked, Who shall say that such a work accomplished by one woman, exiled and maligned by that community among whom she had so long and valiantly labored, bending every effort to the upbringing of the manhood and womanhood of all races, shall not place her in the front ranks of philanthropists, not only of the womanhood of this race, but among all those laborers of all ages and all climes. It is a question that society still asks today, but we are inclined to agree with Mrs. Mosel. And we will see you next time. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy.